I've entitled this morning's study in this passage of the first chapter, Placed for a Purpose. The moment we read verse 9, it became obvious that John had been placed on the island of Patmos for a divine purpose. He had been placed there at that time in human history, that location, if you will, of of a global centrality. And, And John finds himself there with a purpose to write. Just one of them. And he told us back in verse 3, last week we started the book and we we went through verse uh, 1 through 8. But we read in verse 3, you might recall if you're with me, maybe you're watching at home, that in verse 3 there was a promise of a blessing. Uh, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. And he went on to say, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. There's a promise of a blessing for every one of us as we go through this uh, prophetical book. Now, what is prophecy? The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14, 3, uh, that prophecy is edification, exhortation, and comfort. That's what prophecy is, is the the telling forth of the word of God that brings edification to be built up, exhortation to be challenged in the walk with God, and comfort to be comforted in our situation. And today, as we come to these things that that John has penned, there is ample, we're going to follow along, we're going to find ample edification, ample exhortation, and ample comfort for the Christian that he was writing to then and that by the Spirit of God is written to us this morning. So I want to pull us back once again now to verse 9. As we read, we saw that John identifies himself as the writer, the one who is penning these words. But he says that, as he's writing, he says, both your brother and companion in tribulation. Do you notice that? And what's happening is John is writing as a pastor to seven churches in his local area that he spent a lot of time in before he was exiled to Patmos. So he's writing to seven churches in a local area that were under his care. And as he's writing to them, to this you know, flock of God that he was to tend, he, he recognizes and remembers that he is writing to people who are being slaughtered, tortured, and persecuted for their faith. And so he identifies with them. He places himself in their shoes and says, I also am your brother and companion in tribulation. These people, at the time of this writing, were 
in real persecution. As I said, being slaughtered, being tortured, not unlike what took place on October 7th to the people of Israel by the terrorists of Hamas. Slaughtering human life, torturing human life. That's what was happening when John is writing this, and this is who he's writing to. And what we can take away from that very real phrase is that the effective pastor, the effective parent, the effective co-worker, Christian co-worker, the effective mentor is going to be one who writes from a place that understands we're all in this together. We are in this boat called the Ark of salvation in Christ Jesus. We're in it together. John goes on to say that he is their brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Uh, the teacher in our February men's retreat next year, David Guzik, reminds us uh, in his online uh, Blue Letter Bible online source that the island of Patmos, we can compare it much to today's Alcatraz, or rather the Alcatraz of the 20s and 30s and 40s. It was a prison island from which there was no escape. Uh, the island was rich in marble ore, and so the prisoners that were um, placed there were put under forced labor to excavate uh, the quarries and dig out and provide uh, marble for the Roman leaders and their decadence. A traveler who went by there recently, I would say within the last 10 or 20 years, tells us that as he looked on the Isle of, of Patmos, still there today, which uh, that's one of the things that verifies the truth of Scripture is uh, geography. The places written about are still there. He says that it was a mere mass of barren rock Colorless and cheerless, no rivers, no trees, no land for cultivation. And there lays a dingy grotto, which is said to have been the place where the aged apostle lived. A chapel covers it, and it was hung with lamps, kept burning by monks. And what John experienced in his placement there, again, placed for a purpose, he experienced the fact that neither seas nor hardship nor mountains nor any other thing could really separate or sever the bond that Christians have with one another as he's writing to those who love him and those he loves. 
Nothing can separate this bond that we have except our own human reactions to relational problems. You know, if you have a problem with a brother or a sister in Christ, it's not God that wants to divide you. It's oftentimes our perspectives, theirs or ours, that keeps us from being able to enjoy the bond that we have in Christ. Now, it wasn't just that John was a a pastor writing to people. He was also a theologian. We notice that he was there for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And as a theologian, John recognized something. He recognized that it was the word of God that had put him there, and it was the word of God that had made him who he was. The word of God had put him where he was, and the word of God had made him who he was. And church, I would exhort us this morning that that same principle Could you turn this down a little bit, Scott, please? That same principle holds true today. The word of God will put you where you are in relationship with others, in your working world, in your community. The word of God in you will place you. And some around you may not enjoy that placement. Some around you may say, hey, I wish you'd go away. Nope, the word of God has put me right here, right in front of you, and I need to share this with you. The word of God puts you where you are, but the word of God also makes you who you are. And so we see, placed for a purpose, John's first placement was for an effective sharing with brothers and sisters. It was an evidence of the unity that believers have, and he was there for the receiving of the word of God. Secondly, we see that in verse 10, John writes and he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Now, the trumpet, of course, would have been uh, the call, a a loud calling to place every other distraction aside, John, and I'm going to be speaking to you, and so I want your full attention. The blast of a horn. And we see that he was in the spirit, on the Lord's Day, we talked a little bit about this in our Wednesday night interactive study. Those of you who don't join us, I want to invite you to come. Wednesday nights, we have a meal at 5.30. Then we sit in a circle in here at 6.30. And we open up the passage that we're either dealing with on Sunday or getting into. And we talked a little bit about this phrase, in the spirit, on Wednesday night. And what we do know is true is that uh, as, again, David Guzik says, quote, he was carried beyond normal senses into a state of being where God could reveal supernaturally the contents of this book, end quote. 
carried beyond a normal sense. So that why? So that God could reveal the contents of this book. Now the application for you and I this morning is that the scriptures have been written and there's no new revelation that's, that's going to come to any individual. In fact, if you find somebody that says, hey, you know, I know more, there's a new revelation coming from the Bible, point them, if you would, to 2 Peter 1.20, which says that there is no private interpretation of any prophecy. God didn't get this written so that he could keep it a secret. He didn't write this so that someone else could come along and say, oh, I know a little bit more. I'm going to add to it. No, there's no private interpretation. But as far as being in the spirit, so that the spirit man can receive revelation of truth from the word of God, we desperately need that work of the spirit in us to understand what he is saying in this word. Clearly today, we don't need to be carried beyond the normal sense. We just need to endeavor to walk in the Spirit, to be in the Spirit, to ask the Lord to fill us with His Spirit, to seek a fresh baptism of the Spirit. In order that this Word that is alive and quick and powerful can speak to our spiritual man. And so he said, he heard a voice behind him and the voice said in verse 11, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. What we find here again interesting is that if we back up to verse 8 we see that Jesus introduced himself in verse 8 as the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end so now as we come to verse 11 this loud voice behind uh, John belongs to none other than Jesus but what is also true is that this very verse, if you're looking at verse 11, becomes a proof text. Do you know that there are some out there that do not believe that Jesus is God? Probably no one in this room, no one watching at home. But there are some out there that do not believe that Jesus is God. So it's important occasionally, if you're taking note this morning, to have a proof text that you can, you know, bring a person to, to say, no, look at this, okay, and this is one of those. Because in verse 11, the phrase alpha and omega first and last, the first and last phrase uh, <clears throat> belonged to Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. If you look at Isaiah 41.4, Isaiah 44.6, Isaiah 48.12, you will find uh, the Lord, Yahweh, using these phrases to uh, define himself. But the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega has the same idea here. 
And so this is clearly a proof text that tells us that Jesus is God. And he is giving John this command to write in a book and send it to the seven churches. Uh, The question has been asked before, and we'll ask it again this morning with the intent to answer it, is uh, why these specific seven churches? I mean, there were other churches in John's day as he's, you know, exiled to this island. There were other churches. Paul wrote to Rome, the church at Corinth, the church in Galatia, churches in Galatia. So why these seven churches? Have you ever asked that question? I'll read a couple of comments. Some suggest that it was because they are arranged roughly in a circular pattern. Others think that it might have been because this was the the postal districts of Rome. Many believe that the seven churches were chosen because in the Bible, and I hold this view as well, in the Bible, the number seven is the number of completion. We talked about that last week. We've talked about it many times before. Uh, Seven notes in a scale. The eighth note begins a new scale. Seven days in a week. Eighth day begins a new week. That seven is is the numerical in scripture, it is the number of completion. And that these seven literal churches represent the complete church as a whole. One commentator writes, it says, it is the opinion of very learned writers upon this book that our Lord by these seven churches signifies all the churches of Christ to the end of the world and by what he says to them designs to show what shall be the state of churches in all ages. So, yes, these are literal, real churches and yes, they do actually form somewhat of a a circle, a pattern uh, geologically, but... Uh, theologically, these seven churches represent the entirety of the ecclesia, the church age. Now, what's interesting, uh, caught my interest as well, is that Paul actually wrote to seven churches. Paul wrote to, as I said, Rome, Corinth, the churches of Galatia, excuse me, Ephesus, Colossae, Uh, Philippi and Thessalonica. So we have Paul writing to seven churches, but those churches didn't encompass the entirety of the church at large, whereas the prophecy, the putting forth of the word of God to this book does include. And so John is placed there. He's placed there for the purpose. He's placed there for the purpose of sharing an effective uh, message with brothers and sisters 
He's placed there to provide evidence of the unity that believers have and for the receiving of the word of God. He's placed there, if you will, for a deep work of the Spirit. A deeper work of the Spirit in John, a giant's life. He's placed there to gain a a vision of the deity of Jesus Christ. Yes, believing he is the Son of God, he is the Messiah, but making it clear to John now is that he is, in fact, God Almighty in the person of the Son of God. And finally, he was placed there as a reminder of the full function of the churches. Notice when he said to the seven churches, we see in verse 12 that he turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands was one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. So we have some significance here in in what uh, the voice shows him. First of all, we we take a look at the seven uh, golden lampstands. Excuse me. How many of you read your Old Testament recently or are familiar with some of the Old Testament history? You see, in the Old Testament, we have uh, the creation of mankind, the creation of a national people that God wants to give his word to, to speak to, and that they would be the custodians of the word of God throughout thousands of years, uh, all the way up until the time of Christ they were to carry and bring to the world uh, the word of the one true God. And it was through that nation of people that God established uh, worship. And if you recall in their wanderings, they first set up a tabernacle, which eventually became a temple. But during the tabernacle, many of you know that inside the tabernacle, there was a lampstand. And in the lampstand were seven bowls. And in the bowls were oil and out sticking up from that oil were wicks and the lampstand was to be lit and kept lit constantly. The light was to never go out, representative of the fact that the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, were to be a light to a dark world and never was that light to go out. Now, What John sees is different because in the tabernacle there was one lampstand with seven bowls. What John sees is seven lampstands. And that, in fact, is a significant difference between the old covenant and how God was at work in the old covenant and the new covenant and how God is at work in the new covenant. Under the Old Covenant, there was one church, if you will, one body of people that was to be a light to the world. 
Under the new covenant, there are many churches that are to represent or be a light to the world. We see also in the lampstand the significance that the light comes from the oil, not from the lampstand. The light is produced by the oil burning and a wick. And what that is a picture of is that the lampstands don't produce the oil, they just are carriers of the oil. And so therefore, we as a New Testament church, we don't produce the light, we're to carry the light. You and I are to carry the light of God in this dark world to those who are blind, those who cannot see. A third significant thing, I think very important, is that uh, the lamp is not the light itself. It's just an instrument that dispenses the light. And we, beloved as a church, we are to be an instrument that dispenses the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So this is a different vision that John sees. And it's important uh, in the prophetic utterance that, it, that John understands that this is different. And so he is placed there for this deep work of the Spirit, for this vision of the deity of Christ, and a reminder of the full function of the church to bear the light of God to a dark world. We read in verse 14, what John sees is uh, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace and his voice as of the sound of many waters. We have head, hair, eyes, feet, and voice. And we come now to some very interesting things. The head and hair being uh, white like wool, white as snow. Certainly a reference to or likened unto, if you will, in Daniel chapter 7 verse 9, God Almighty is referred to as the ancient of days. It's it's his antiquity, if you will. And so uh, the voice is showing John uh, his antiquity, that he is in fact the ancient of days, equal with the Father. In his eyes, interesting, you see that in his eyes they were like a flame of fire. And fire often speaks throughout the scripture as a form of judgment. Excuse me. Fire often speaks as a form of judgment. Um, 
But these eyes and this sense of judgment, it's like searching and, and a penetrating look. When John sees it, uh, these eyes are penetrating, they are searching, they are uh, their fire, in other words, judgment is coming. We see his feet. Uh, they're referred to like fine brass. Okay, brass was a, a metal that uh, endured great dur durability. Okay, it was a very durable metal. And we see that these feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And so, as we would relate this to the, the person and the work of Jesus Christ, coming to the cross at Calvary, I mean, his life was placed through the furnace of God's wrath. We're told in the scripture that uh, he took upon himself the penalty and sin of all mankind. And that he came forth purified. Resurrected and holy. I love Proverbs uh, as Solomon wrote in Proverbs 17.3, he said, The fire for gold and the furnace for silver, but the Lord tests the hearts. And so what is true of, of that today for you and I is that your faith and mine will often be put through the furnace of testing. And though what happens to a special uh, ore, you may recall the, the, the fire for gold and the furnace for silver, but the Lord tests the hearts. A, a jeweler would heat gold many different times in order to get it to be pure. And in the, the heating of the gold, you would take the raw ore, place it under a Bunsen burner, and it eventually would melt down. But what would raise to the top is dross, the, the minerals that are integrated into the raw gold. And so the jeweler would take a special tool and scoop off the dross and throw the dross out and then heat the gold even hotter so that in that second heating, more dross rises to the top. And then he would scoop the dross again and he would continue this process over and over and over again until the liquid gold became so clear that he could see his reflection in it. <laughs> the application is very easy to make. The fire for gold, the furnace for silver, but the Lord tests the hearts. Those things that God pulls us through. You ever use the phrase, man, that felt like being pulled through a knothole backwards. The things that times that God pulls us through are simply that process of, 
of the person of Christ, our faith in that person, and his taking up residence in this heart is that heat being turned up so that the dross, the things that uh, are impure, the things that God wants to remove, the things that hinder the reflection of Christ being seen in your life and mine. God raises that furnace and raises that furnace. And none of us would go in the foyer and, you know, there's a sign up in the foyer. Turn up the heat, Lord, you know. You, we don't ask for it. But God knows when it's necessary. He knows when the dross has become such that the reflection is getting marred. And those that come across your life path, instead of seeing the person of Christ at work in your life, they're seeing you and your frustrations and your anger and your, your disappointment with other people and uh, perhaps a language that's not pleasant to the ear and, and behavior that isn't pleasant to the community. And God says, man, wow, my child, I love that child. And next thing you know, me and you were going like, what's going on? Why is this happening? You get the picture? Yeah. And John was placed there, if you will. Placed there to see the man, the mediator, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, to see the judge of all the earth, the purified son of God. Remember his words in the garden, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but whose? Thy will be done. God, I wish... Have you ever said, Lord, I wish we could do this a different way? And God says, well, Sherry and I have a fun phrase. And it goes like this. I, she should write a book. You should write a book, Sherry. Things I learned when I taught first and second grade. So you teach first and second graders. I don't know. I forget why we get into this, but they have a game called Going on a Bear Hunt. You remember that? Maybe you remember it. I remember because I used to sing it with them. But it's we're going on a bear hunt. And they start pumping their feet, you know. Whoop, there's a river. Can't go over it. Can't go under it. Can't go around it. Got to go through it. Oh, going on a bear hunt. Whoop, there's the mountain. And a little tongue-in-cheek this morning to lighten it, but the fact of the matter is for Christ to be formed in you and me, we can't go around that or under it or over it. We must go through it. John, placed for a purpose to hear the living, breathing Speaking voice of God. We read in verse 16, we'll 
start to head toward the end of this morning's study, that he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. So when I came to this portion, and I was thinking, you know, what's, what's the purpose or purposes here? And we do know that the right hand represented scripturally, biblically, the place of strength, the place of ownership, the place of inheritance. And so here in his right hand, and he tells us in in verse 20, right, uh, what you saw in my right hand uh, and the seven golden lampstands, the stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And so he had in his right hand, what? The stars. And the stars are the angels of the seven churches, or rather the representatives of those seven churches, those pastors and caregivers, or people that were responsible for those seven churches. Uh, An angel was a messenger. And so the messenger to those seven churches, whoever it is that's bringing the messages of God to those seven churches, Jesus says, I have them in my right hand. Well, that should be comforting that Almighty God has made a prophetic promise that those that bring the genuine message of the word of God to the church, Christ holds them in his hand. They're secure. He's got the churches in his hand. He's got their future in his hand. He's got their care in his hand. He has got you in his hand. He's got the whole world. No, right? Okay, well, there's a difference between being a child born and a child of God. And we've talked about that here. So that's a beautiful uh, summary course, if you will. But a greater theological truth is that he's got the entire church in his hand. And we see that out of his mouth went a a sharp two-edged sword. And well, immediately maybe your minds go, to again that passage in Hebrews, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is uh, quick and powerful, alive, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Yes, that is the word of God, but what's interesting is that the two words there are different words in the original language. In Hebrews 4.12, the Greek word there is markai, which means a, a smaller device which is tactical for up-close work. So you, you and I are to take the word of God in our heart and get close to someone with it, and it, it cuts both ways, right? But we've got to be close to use it in tactical battle. 
This sword is different. It's a different Greek word. It's the word uh, romphii, if I'm saying that correctly. And it's a heavy, heavy sword that is built for destruction. Coming out of his mouth. Not the sword itself, but the words that will come. That as John gets into what's being written to the churches, exhortation, edification, and comfort, and then what comes, we'll see after this, that God's word will bring destruction to the earth. That he is there, and he sees his countenance like the the sun shining in its strength. Well, that brought to mind uh, the Mount Transfiguration. Remember who was there? Peter, James, and John. And John had seen him in his transfigured state. Elijah and Moses were with him, and so we're not sure what that vision looked like. We know that John also was in the room when uh, Thomas was there. Remember, Thomas wouldn't believe unless I see the nail scars in his hand and put my fingers in in the, the holes. And Jesus walks into the room in his glorified body and, and says to Thomas, Behold, my hands touch me. And when Thomas put his fingers in there, he said, my Lord, my God. John was there. So John had seen Jesus in that state. He'd seen him in the Mount of Transfiguration. But here's, here's another glorious, different vision that John is seeing. He's seeing his countenance like the sun shining in its strength. Too bright, too bright, too bright. And these beautiful purposes that, that John is placed there for He's placed there for the purpose of knowing who holds the church firmly. Here he is exiled on on Patmos, concerned about these seven churches. Lord, who's going to take care of them? Those of us in the pastorate, we care about the church. And yet this is a reminder to all of us God says, contemporary phrase, I got this, right? I've got it in my hand. He's there for the purpose of knowing the weapon that this Christ will use when judgment comes. It will be his word. He's there for the purpose of seeing his glorious face and countenance. Finally this morning, in verse 17 and 18, as we read it, when I saw him, I fell at his feet dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are, and the things which will take place 
after this. And then in verse 20, Jesus defines what the mystery of the seven stars are, what the golden lampstands are, what the angels uh, of the seven churches are. And so we see in verses 17, 18, and 19 that John is placed there for two central purposes. Number one is to not be afraid of this resurrected Christ. That he is indeed these three titles. He's the Lord of all eternity. It says there, I am he who lives and was dead. He, he's the one who lives forevermore. He didn't resurrect to die again. He lives forevermore. And that he, he is the one that holds the keys to Hades and to death. And he's not going to let Satan borrow them. He's not going to give them out. He holds those keys. So he's there for this uh, knowing not to be afraid of this resurrected Jesus and to write. Write what? Write these things that he has just seen. Then he's to write the things that are, which we'll get to next week. We'll start. And then he's to write the things which will take place after this. I mentioned it last Sunday, mentioning it again. Clearly in that last sentence of verse 19, he gives the outline for the book of Revelation, which makes it very uh, much easier to understand. Chapter 1, the things that John has seen. Chapter 2 and 3, the letter to the seven churches, the things that are. Chapters 4, all the way through the end of the book, through 22, the things that must take place after this. After what? After the church. So a day is coming in which we will be raptured and caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with him, and thus will begin the things that will come after. Let's apply it. And then we'll wind it up. I am convinced this morning as I kind of wrapped around, you know, placed for a purpose, that you and I, every one of us, have also been placed here for a purpose. One of which is to receive the word of God in this point in your life, wherever you find yourself living, wherever you find yourself going to church, if you're watching it at home, especially for this community of believers, those of us calling CCVS our home, you've been placed here to receive the word of God because it is the word of God that puts you where you are and it is the word of God that will make you who you are. That you've been placed here at this point in time for a deep work of the Spirit. God is carving in these last days. He is not content with superficial Christianity. What did we call it last week? Bob, you can have anything you want in your little world. What was that guy? God's not looking for a Bob Ross Christianity. 
He's looking for a biblical Christianity alive in the hearts of those that profess him as Lord. You have been placed here for a clearer understanding of who this resurrected Christ is. Maybe it's foggy in your brain who Jesus is. You've been placed at this point in time, in this location, in in this church, I'll say, for a clear understanding of our resurrected Christ. You've been placed here to know that he holds you and the church in his hand and to not be afraid. Let him put his hand on you today and tell you, do not fear. I am with you. I love you. I'm doing a deep work in you so that you as a part of my church can bear the light to a dark world. Very exciting. And next week we get into the letters to the churches. So read ahead chapter 2, if you will. Let's pray with me and we'll close this morning. Dear Lord, we're grateful to be able to gather freely, to be able to break together the bread of the Word of God, to allow you, by your still small voice, yet which speaks so loudly, to speak to our lives and exhort us, to edify us, and to comfort us. This morning you have done that, Lord. Because you know every one of us. You know our need this morning. Whether our need was for comfort. Maybe there are some here today that needed a little push of the Holy Spirit get closer to who you are. Maybe there are those who wanted to be built up. Lord, you've done that today.